Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Oh, I sound like Santa. Oh, it's very cold today. Very cold day. And it's going to be very cold over the next few days. So think of the birds. We're going to be telling you about the Mooney Goes Wild Birdwatch Ireland Great Big Garden Birdwatch, which is taking place on Monday, February the 5th. That's St. Bridget's Day, the next bank holiday. February 5th and it'll be live on Radio 1 from 3pm and we want you to get involved. We'll tell you more about it very shortly. But first let me begin with the first real programme because last week we had Terry Flanagan's wonderful documentary about pigeons on air. So this is the first time we get to speak to you now in the new year. So Happy New Year! Happy New Year to each and every one of our listeners and everybody who contributes to the programme. And to the panellists today, Niall Hatch is in studio. Happy New Year to you, Niall, if it isn't too late. And to you, Dark. No, absolutely. And Happy New Year to all the listeners. And to Michelle Brown, our researcher. Michelle, Happy New Year to you! Thanks, Derek. (laughs) Happy New Year to you and to everyone. I'd say there's people throwing stuff at the radio (laughs) right around the country. Anyway, Michelle, you've popped in. You've got some emails. Yep, and um, you were talking there about birds. Lots of bird emails coming in over. And one is going back to the programme that went out on Christmas Day, your 12 Mm -hmm. birds of Christmas. And Beverly emailed in thinking that the 12 drummers would more likely to be a snipe as they are a bird that is eaten and has a display that is called drumming. Oh, no, that's interesting. So we just remind our listeners. So we took the carol 12 days of Christmas and we wondered what it might sound like if it were the 12 birds of Christmas. So we discussed all the birds that already feature there. Six in total were brought. Well, there was more than six, but six individual species were brought by my true love over the Christmas period to me. And then we filled in the rest. So Niall, what were the drummers? So the the drummer is based on the discussion that we had with the English author Stephen Moss, who'd written a book about the the 12 birds of Christmas. His theory was that the uh, 12 drummers drumming in uh, in the song could be woodpeckers, the great spotted woodpecker, because it's fancy drums on the trees. Mm-hmm. However, I do think there's a lot of merit in perhaps into it being snipe because one of Stephen's theories is that the, everything in the in the song is actually a bird. Uh, it would seem very strange that the, the the true love starts giving gifts of birds and then it switches to to completely unrelated things, people in fact, which would be very strange. So it seems to be birds and perhaps game birds and it would make sense because the snipe, they do this amazing display uh, in the breeding season. Instead of a song, what they do is the male will plummet down at a certain angle in flight and as he does that, he has these little stiffened tail feathers that stick out of the side and they vibrate in the air. It makes a sound a bit like a bleating goat. That's very good. <laughs> Isn't that, I've heard it in Iceland. I've never heard it here, funny enough. You hear, you hear quite a bit in the boglands in Ireland. If you're around, if you're around walking the bog during the summer, especially in the evenings, you'll hear that. But it's the, it's the classic sound in Iceland. There's so many of them there. And in fact, many of those Icelandic snipe spend the winter here in Ireland and where, where they are shot. They're, they're, they are legally allowed to be hunted here in Ireland. Uh, and so it would make sense that perhaps was the bird mentioned as the drummer drumming because that display is known as drumming, that sound. Mm. Because it is a game bird. It, it is widely eaten and has been and many of the other species mentioned in that are birds that were known for consumption. So the partridges and uh, the the, um, the collie birds, the calling birds, the, the blackbirds black bird at the time, yeah. uh, birds like that. So it could well be that it's a snipe. That's a very good idea. Good suggestion. Now, what else coming in? So lots of pictures. Um, you were mentioning about garden birds with pictures of greenfinches and blue tits coming in. Lovely picture of um, Kingfisher. Um, and then um, Celia Willoughby sent in um, a picture of a cormorant on a, a lamppost. Yes, yeah, so this this a cormorant on a lamppost. Yes, um, she was she was wondering what what it was, and I'm not surprised because it's a very unusual context to see that bird in. Uh, cormorants uh, they're easily identifiable because of the way that they um, they hang out their wings to dry after mm. they've been swimming. Uh, so there's only two birds in Ireland will do that. One is the cormorant, sometimes called the great cormorant, and the other is its very close relative, the shag. The shag. Uh, but the thing is that uh, while both are common birds around the Irish coast, it's only the cormorants that move inland. They'll happily go up river and canal systems you find them on lakes you only find the shags around the coast so if you see a, a large mainly dark bird with a long neck um, hanging its wings out to dry beside its body and you're inland it's going to be a cormorant now normally they'll do that on, on rocks or on the bank of a river or maybe on an island or a small tree I've never seen one actually doing it on top of a lamppost so it's quite an unusual <laughs> photograph so very well done for sending that one in Was the light on at the time? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was during the daytime okay, so the light so itself, the light, the light the itself light wasn't, wasn't on, on no. Just wondering was it getting any heat from the light you that's see? A, that's a good suggestion I wonder I know that certain week we get lots 
lots of reports of buzzards that big bird of prey mm. using uh, lampposts to, to scan for prey actually well, they, they'll, they'll off me at the side of the motorways looking for roadkill we think uh, so that's one of the reasons why they use those vantage points but there could be some warmth in it too but in this case no I think it was just drying the wings and finally Michelle Celia Breyer um, was walking along the canal in Lancaster and she noticed mallards diving and swimming underwater and she didn't think they did that and she was wondering about it. So, yes, yeah, so, so mallards belong to a group called the dabbling ducks and um, the other ones like teal and widgeon belong to that same group and they're ducks that tend to feed by upending in the water so you'll see them putting their heads below the surface but their tails are still up above the, above the surface and they don't really dive below the surface compared to birds like tufted duck and pochard which frequently dive well below the surface can stay down for a couple of minutes at a time completely swimming below but it doesn't mean that mallards can't do that they don't like to do it but if um, if needs must they will they're not very good at it but if I, I've seen it happen sometimes if a bird like a peregrine falcon a predator arrives the mallards sometimes will submerge themselves completely below the water and I think sometimes as well when there's a lot of food so particularly when people are throwing lots of bread or, or seed or something like that into mm. water if the reward is good enough and the water is shallow enough those birds will submerge themselves at least temporarily to get that food before it sinks too far or if if it's shallow enough they'll get it off the bottom they're not very good at it though so when you see them doing it you'll see they bob up very very quickly it's not effortless at all they're not really designed for it part of that is because they have such a thick layer of fat just below um, below their skin which is great for insulation it's great for buoyancy um, but it's terrible for swimming below the surface so you find that these dabbling ducks they tend not to be very good they at need gondola. divers weights they need divers weights exactly yep. <laughs> that's, it. that's it that's fantastic anyway you can email Mooney at rte.ie and we do our best to answer every email that comes in Michelle thank you very much indeed pleasure and perhaps you'll have some more next week. Okay. Okay, bye. There goes Michelle and Happy New Year again to Michelle. Now, Niall, we're talking about the great big Birdwatch Ireland and Mooney Goes Wild Garden Bird Survey, which is going to take place live on air on the 5th of February. But the Garden Bird Survey is ongoing. It is, yes. So the Irish Garden Bird Survey, it's been running for uh, 35 winters now in its current format. Uh, and uh, it's uh, great. We know that so many Mooney Goes Wild listeners particularly really take it to heart. What we do essentially is we ask people over the course of 13 weeks during the winter, so from the end of November through to the end of February, uh, to keep track of the different species of bird that visit their garden on a weekly basis, but also the highest number of each species they see at any one time. Uh, and it might sound a little complicated, but actually it's, it's very simple. When you get your head around it, it's, it's easy enough. Uh, and then what happens is thousands of households across the country do this. And the data we get from this is absolutely phenomenal. There's no way that we could get professional ornithologists to go out and collect even a fraction of that amount of data. Um, but to get all of this information in, it tells us so much about uh, how bird populations are doing, how they're responding to weather, things like climate change, food availability. And when you have three and a half decades of this data there, it builds up such an amazing picture. Uh, sometimes people would think, you know, organisations like Birdwatch Ireland, they probably only be interested in, in monitoring the, the rare bird populations mm. and surveying those. Now we do do that of course but you can actually tell a lot more from monitoring the common birds because the, the sample sizes are so much higher and that's where you often first detect changes in populations. So when throughout the course of the survey let's say for example birds like goldfinches have been really common but we've seen them actually increasing in gardens. Conversely, we've seen over the last 10 years or so a big decrease in another common bird called the greenfinch. Um, so a lot of people still have them in their gardens, but we know their numbers are going down. It seems because of, a, in, in the case of the greenfinch, because of a disease that's been hitting them. Without thousands of people taking part in the survey, we just think those birds are just standardly common. We wouldn't know that their distributions were changing, their populations were going up or down. So it really is amazing that people do this for us. And I really appreciate every, each and every person who submits their, their sightings. Well, we've teamed up this year, so we're going to have a great big garden bird watch on Monday, 5th of February from 3pm on RT Radio 1. We'll have our regular contributors dotted around the country, but we're also asking you to take part, to phone in on that day. And we'll guess, look, it's not going to be scientific. It'll be a snapshot in this place at this time on this day. Here is what was in my garden. And it's just to really raise awareness of garden birds and get you interested in the field. Now, Jim Wilson, it was really him, our man in Cork, Jim Wilson, who came up with the idea for the Garden Bird Survey. So what is it, 35 years ago thereabouts? Well, in the original format, I think it's back in the mid-80s actually that, that Jim first came up with this idea here in Ireland and to, to capture what's going on around uh, with, with bird populations in gardens. So hats off to him for that. Uh, and uh, since then it's, it's, it's grown and it's become a phenomenon. A lot of people around the country really, I would almost say obsessed with it. That's how how, how deep now it is in, in, in many people's uh, calendar. People really like it. And we're still only halfway through, so there's still plenty of time for people to take part. Well, the great news is that we'll also be able to stream live from Jim's garden on the mm. day. Now, earlier today, we spoke to him from where? His garden in Cove in County Cork. 
Derek, good morning, good morning, Niall and everybody listening to. I'm here in my garden and I've been watching some uh, blue tits. Uh, they look like they're starting to pair up uh, and there was a great tit checking out one of the nest boxes. Went in and out about three times, looked at the entrance. Uh, so obviously today it's nice and bright and dry. It's bloody cold, but it's obviously a day for them to get a chance to think ahead to, to the breeding season and of course because of that uh, it, gardens are really really important habitats in Ireland now I think if you add them all up it comes to thousands of acres of, of, of potential uh, nature reserve uh, on the country uh, in the country and the, the birds as I say at the moment are more interested in surviving through these really cold spells we're getting now especially because the ground is hard there's less insects because the winters have been milder so birds have been able to get some insects during the winter but now even that's gone uh, any any kind of uh, you know ground uh, hunting birds like the thrushes and the and the blackbirds the ground is going to be like concrete after a couple of days. And so they, they can't get at the worms because they all go deeper uh, and any, any other uh, uh, creatures that are living in the soil that they eat. Um, you'll probably get more robins coming to you if you're out getting your gardening ready for spring planting and all that sort of thing because they'll be relying on you digging, digging the ground to get down to where uh, all the food is. So yeah, so at the moment it's, it's, it's a crucial time for the birds to see them through the winter and as, as Niall uh, already uh, described so well uh, that the Garden Bird Survey has shown us that um, indeed uh, gardens uh, are a very important habitat for birds in Ireland. So will you describe your garden? You yeah. Describe yeah. your garden. You're in Cove County Cork. Yeah. Tell us yeah. where you are and describe okay. the layout and how many feeders you have up okay. and more importantly what you actually have in them, Jim. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I, I'm standing outside the, 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 the back kitchen here at the moment. There's a blue tit who is ignoring me and, and feeding away on just the, the, the classic stand standard peanut feeder in the in the wire mesh you know the square wire mesh feeder so i have that on a, on a pole and it, it, it's actually a metal pole that i that i scavenged from an old uh, city uh, couch that fell apart but the pole was perfect because nothing can climb up it and and so you just have the birds coming to that to that feeder out the back i'm looking at uh, it's house sparrow nest box on the garage and I'm looking at another uh, nest box over on the back wall. And then if I go to the other side of the house, which is the south facing, I've got my bird table. And on the bird table, I have a very low roof on the bird table. A lot of bird tables you'll get in, in garden centres and stuff like that. The roof is so high, it's ornamental. It's, it's, it has no function. Uh, whereas I have my bird table... The roof is so low uh, that only the smaller birds can get in and out. And in that, I have a sunflower seed feeder. And it's very funny watching the, the blue tits and the gray tits and the robins, believe it or not, they come in and they grab one and then they fly to the nearest bush and then they dismantle the seed and, and eat the kernel and then they come in over and get another one and then go back to the bush. They don't actually eat at the table. But hanging off the table then, I have a Niger seed feeder with these tiny little black seeds, but the goldfinches love them. And I'm not joking you. I only got the feeder at a Birdwatch Ireland branch meeting just before Christmas because I'd never really used Niger seed. Uh, I'm not a big seed fan because if they get if the seed gets wet, it goes mouldy, it clogs up uh, the feeders and stuff like that. But I said I'd give the Niger uh, a go. I think I had two goldfinches in the garden up to the time I put out the Niger seed feeder and I'm not joking you within two days I had six goldfinches fighting over access to the seeds and within a week I recorded a flock of 27 goldfinches in the garden and I'm in a suburban garden I'm not out in the middle of the countryside and it's been amazing uh, with the goldfinches. So they've come in and they're using that. None, none of the other birds seem to have mastered the, the, the art of taking Niger seeds, which are tiny, out of the feeder. And, and because the, the hole is about the, the, the diameter of a pencil. Uh, so that I have that one. And then I have another classic peanut uh, feeder as well. I don't put out fat balls in general because I, I find... You get all the starlings come in and they're, they're coming to the peanut feeders anyway mm -hmm. and they just take over sometimes and then you even get jackdaws 
coming in and I have jackdaws now coming to the peanut feeders uh, as well. Uh, I don't know how they get the peanuts out, but you can see them pecking away at it. So there, there's plenty of activity there. Then I also have a pond. Yeah. And I get I get as many birds coming to the pond in the winter because people often think in the winter, God, they'd hardly go for... They, I think they think of sea swimming, you know. God, jeez, they're not going to get into that cold water. But the birds don't mind it. They need to keep their feathers really in, in, in good good condition. So washing is important. So we, we get as many birds coming to the pond as we do even coming to the feeders. So there's always something to look at. There's plenty of activity for them. They come and go. And at the moment, the, the feeders, I've got like 14 or 15 house sparrows who have moved in. And they seem to only come here for the winter. I've yet to get them to use the nest box. They all disappear for the summer. So they obviously breed somewhere else nearby. And then they all move in and feed in the garden for the winter. Lovely. And you mentioned starlings. We'll be talking to Connor ah. McCauley, our northern correspondent, a little bit later on because I don't know if you know, this is the time of year when you're going to see the starling murmurations. Oh, yeah. We'll have plenty to say on that in a few moments as well. But in Northern Ireland, just over and then under the Albert Bridge. If you live in that part of the world, you'll be familiar with it. It's a beautiful bridge. The starlings have been murmurating. Is that the word, Niall? Murmurating? Yeah, they'll do. They'll do. <laughs> Performing their murmurations uh, for the last God knows how long. We've featured them on the programme lots of times. But anyway, they disappeared and now they're back. Why are they back? We'll be finding out a little bit later on, Niall. Jim, really interesting listening to what you're saying there, particularly about the goldfinches, one of the loveliest birds I think we get in our garden. So many people just love to see them. They're so colourful with those red faces, that lovely golden yellow in the wing. Who wouldn't want them in the garden? Now, when we first started the Irish Garden Bird Survey, that bird was quite scarce in Irish gardens. It was maybe only 3 or 4% of the gardens participating in the surveys were recording them. That has sure changed over the last few decades. The species now regularly gets into over 80% of the gardens in the survey and I think that that food that you mentioned the niger seed I think that's one of the keys there those birds have learned that that's a really good source of food and energy for them and they just flock into the gardens when you provide it and then what we're finding too there's other birds benefit so as the winter progresses often as you're just getting in towards February another little member of the finch family called the siskin they seem to come down into the niger seed feeders now as well so that's another species that has learned this is a great source of food from in the gardens also I think when you're mentioning there about the different varieties of food sometimes really varieties the key because different species have different feeding requirements. But you mentioned about watching the, the blue tits coming in and whether they take the seeds away, the way that the jackdaws are so crafty, they can take those fat balls and feed on those. That's one of the things that I find most interesting about garden bird feeders. You can see that some of the birds are incredibly smart. Some species are very good at solving problems, whereas other birds, they just really go on instinct. They can't use logic to overcome problems. So a good example would be the dunnock. I have a dunnock that lives in my garden and it comes out in the evenings to snatch food that falls on the ground just below the table. Uh, it doesn't like to be up above the ground. It doesn't like to go to the feeders. And despite the fact that there's lots of food just above its head, it doesn't seem to be able to work out that it can just fly up there and feed on that when it wants to. Whereas for the blue tits or the magpies or the jackdaws, that's no problem. They can immediately work out how to, 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 to get around the way the other birds are behaving or how they can, they can sneak in to get the food and solve all these problems. It's fascinating stuff. To be honest, I'm just actually looking at a dunnock here and it looks like it's looking at the, the feeder but it's definitely wanting to be on the ground and you're dead right and, and another thing is very interesting when people get to watch feeders you know some people think it's just oh a bird comes in gets some seed and it goes away again but as you say there are so many different characters uh, in, in the garden bird um, you know lineup uh, that come in and out and what I often find very funny is when a bird is on the feeder it, it doesn't a lot of them don't like eye contact with any other bird so you have one bird on one side and you have another bird on the other side and if one moves around and eventually gets eye contact they start chasing each other and then they settle down again and they're all happy once they can't see each other on the feeder. I, I had a flock of six long-tailed tits come in this morning and there was a house sparrow on one side of the peanut feeder and the six of them actually managed to cram in on the other side and the, the house sparrow, I, I think it didn't even know they were there because it couldn't see them. It was quite amazing. So you, you get great, great fun watching the, 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 the behaviour and as, as Niall just said too mm. there, like the fact that you get like the siskin is, is now copying on as well to the Niger seed as well. Uh, and, and that's just fascinating. And some might argue, you know, are you not kind of domesticating or semi-domesticating them? You're, you're not really, because in the summer, 
you don't get the, the number of birds you normally get in the winter. They move off and they start relying on natural food sources when there's plenty of that about. And they, re, they, they revert back to the feeders only when they have to. And I also say that with the amount of damage we've done over the decades and centuries to their habitat and continue to do, you know, when new houses are built and they have to be built and all that sort of thing, they're losing more and more habitat. Then I think we're just kind of helping to redress the balance a little bit. And that, that, that I think is not a, no harm either. Jim, let's uh, talk to Eric Dempsey because we're talking about some of the common species in your garden that come in. Eric Dempsey, who is in County Wicklow, who will also be part of this mega broadcast on the 5th of February. He gets some, well, unusual and rare-ish birds. Eric... Hello, Derek. I hope you can hear me loud and clear. Loud and clear, Eric. Well, as we are speaking, and as I was listening to Jim and to Niall there, uh, and as I am looking out my window at the moment, I am in the presence of one of the most beautiful birds that in a million years I never thought I'd see on my nut feeders. I am actually watching a male great spotted woodpecker as we talk. And it is a stunning bird. If anybody's never seen a great spotted woodpecker, they're quite a large bird, about the size of maybe a blackbird, but they're, they're quite upright and uh, they are black and white. But they have a beautiful red undertail. And also the male has a little red spot on the back of its head. Now, about a week ago, we also had an adult female in and they are obviously nesting locally because in the summer, we actually had the male bring three juvenile birds into the feeders and they were all sitting around on the trees as he went from the nut feeder to the nut feeder and out and feeding the chicks in the garden. Now, in a million years, I never thought I would ever see the day. Oh, he's just just gone off there into into the other trees. I, I'm living um, just south of the lovely little village of Newcastle in County Wicklow, which is the home of East Coast Nature Reserve. And I'm, I'm about one and a half kilometres in from the coast, so I'm slightly inland. And um, we have about, myself and Hazel, we have about an acre and a bit of, of a garden. And we've planted loads and loads of trees, hundreds of native trees. We have some very old things like an old oak, and an old sycamore and beautiful old ash trees also in the garden. And uh, we also have a large pond as well, which we put in. And we're lucky to have things like newts and, and frogs in there as well. So I am I am, I am very blessed to have a garden like this because, as you know, Derek, I, I was born and bred in Finglas. And like I had nut feeders hanging out of the clothesline. And I suppose that's a wonderful thing about um, about bird feeding. You know, I'm very lucky to have a, a garden here, with, which is quite large and we have several feeding stations up. Um, I was listening to Jim. Ah, Jim, you're very cheap using the old sunflower seeds. I have sunflower hearts. Our <laughs> ones are very posh. They don't have to take them away. Do your birds a treat. Buy them sunflower hearts. Um, like yourself, Jim, we also put out Niger. And as the winter progresses, um, for some reason, our area really increases in finch numbers. And last winter, um, I had 87 goldfinches on the Niger feeders at one time, which was the, the highest count I ever had, but that was during a really cold snap. Uh, I also have the peanut feeders, which is what the, the great spot of woodpecker loves. I have um, seeds, which I place on the ground because a lot of finches coming in and a bird I'm looking for that we get into the garden every year is the sort of the, the northern version of a chaffinch. It's called a brambling. And we've been very lucky to get small numbers of bramblings in. They don't usually arrive into our garden till about January or February. We don't get them any earlier than that. Um, and uh, we've been blessed by those. They're beautiful birds, blackish heads. And that beautiful deep orange breast. So I'm on the lookout for, for branding. So I spread a lot of seeds on the ground. And we also have the suet bowls. And at the moment, um, most days we have a lovely male black cap, which is a, a warbler now that winters in Ireland, probably from Germany or Poland or one of the Central European countries, and ha is wintering in Ireland. And um, it's a lovely grey, buffy grey bird with, as the name suggests, a black cap. That bird is actually feeding exclusively on the suet bowls, as are the, the raiding parties of, of long-tailed tits. So I'm in a, in a very fortunate position uh, that myself and Hazel have this wonderful garden. And the, the downside to having a wonderful garden is you get nothing done. You, you come down to the kitchen, you have a whole day's work maybe of admin to do, and you, you have your breakfast and you look out at the garden, and then five hours later you're still having your fourth cup of tea and still looking out at the garden. Uh, so it's, it is addictive, and I think that's the, the wonder of the, the bird survey, because 
people, once they start it, they do become addicted to it. And like you have these incredible birds outside of your window in winter. And what most people, of course, don't realise would be that an awful lot of these birds, if if you could translate what they're speaking, they're speaking, you know, Swedish and Finnish. They're, they're, they're from Northern Europe, many of these finches. So it's, it's a real pleasure to have birds like that in your garden. Fantastic, Eric. And we'll talk to you on the 5th of February, OK? And hopefully the great spotted woodpecker will be performing well on the day, Derek. Hopefully. Talk to you again, Eric. Bye. Thank you. Bye. There goes Eric. God, Jim, will you ever get yourself some sunflower hearts for heaven's sake? <laughs> well, obviously, Eric has forgotten his roots totally. I mean, God's sake, sunflower hearts. Where is he going? Uh, the bottom line actually is, is you know, they're, they're, it's all good. It's all good. And sunflower hearts, I don't come across them so often uh, to buy, but you can obviously get, get the seeds. And most pet shops now have become very good at getting good quality seeds. That's also important. You don't want to kill your birds with kindness by putting out, you know, half dried old peanuts and things like that check them and if you're not happy with them bring them back to the pet shop and tell them because sometimes they, 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 you, you get peanuts and they, they've kept them from the year before because they didn't sell and what happens is all the nutrients and the oils and everything degenerate and you, you, you're putting out low quality food for, for the birds then over the winter so it's important that they're high quality and uh, a lot of them now have particular stamps on them of passed by various organisations as being good for birds and that, that is vital that the food you get is good but, but the quality now is much much better than it used to be and most pet shops uh, have a good selection of, of foods uh, that you can buy Okay Jim, now we will talk to you on the 5th of February yep. and again we'll be doing this live so we're encouraging everybody to make a date in their diary so it'll be the Mooney Goes Wild Birdwatch Ireland great big garden birdwatch <laughs> Jim thank you very much indeed and we'll talk to you later thank you Derek bye. thank you Niall bye Jim Wilson and Eric Dempsey truly are passionate about this subject they really are and great ambassadors for the world of birds too I hope that's inspired a lot of people to get out well you don't have to go out you can look out your kitchen window and record those birds we have all the details on the on the Mooney Goes Wild website uh, so you can you can participate in the Birdwatch Ireland survey there there's still plenty of time and then as you said Derek tune in on the 5th of February and we'll have a live updates yeah it's going to be like the dawn on chorus you see except we get a bit of a lion yeah we get a bit of a lion and it's happening during the day yeah and you can see what's going on around you normally in the dawn chorus you just hear the birds you can't see them but now we're asking you to see them to look and see what's in the garden there won't be much in the way of singing you might hear the odd robin but you won't hear much else at this time of year it's fair to say it is I just noticed just this morning I heard um, both goldfinches and blackbirds starting to sing outside really? my house so oh yeah my it's, some, it's just it's just kicking off really now um, it's early but um, yeah so it, it just shows us the we're already past the, the, the shortest day in the year the days are getting longer that pr- produces hormones in the birds that prompt them to start singing yeah. because singing is territorial behaviour so although they're not nesting yet for most species at least they are starting at the very early stages to get into breeding yes, there's mode. definitely a stretch in the evening now. there's no <laughs> question about it now Jim Wilson mentioned the starlings coming into the hanging feeder and at this time of year you will see starling murmurations if you're lucky and if you've ever seen one you will be mesmerised you will be in awe of the true beauty of nature when it comes to aerial acrobatics these birds are top of the class would you agree Niall? They really are and they're a great mystery as well because we still don't fully understand what's going on there. For people who don't know them, I'm sure you might have seen them on television if you haven't seen them in, in real life. The starling, a, a relatively small, mostly blackish bird, a dark bird, they're not much to look at necessarily. A bit annoying some people find descending on their feeders or making a mess of their washing. But when they get together in the winter in these big flocks, just before they go to sleep in the evenings, I think they're responsible for one of the most breathtaking sights in all of nature anywhere on the planet because they'll gather together in their, their thousands, sometimes their hundreds hundreds of thousands uh, and they perform this I can only describe it as an aerial ballet someone once described it as looking a bit like the way a lava lamp moves in the sky that's very very appropriate uh, it's a very good description of it it's just this performance and all of a sudden no individual bird seems to be in charge they're all moving almost as a single organism they never collide with each other they never crash uh, and it's just amazing and we don't fully know why they do it but then all of a sudden it's over as soon as it began mm. because just on some unseen signal all the birds then descend into the trees or into a reed bed or wherever they're sleeping for the night and it's got completely 
quiet. And that's when the silence becomes deafening because the murmuration, it isn't just a wonderful spectacle, a wonderful sight for the eyes. It's the sound. It's the sound. It's just like a jet engine rushing past. It's incredible, isn't it? It really is amazing. Well, you're familiar with some of the sites around the country, but you want to find out about more of the sites. That's right. So our, our Irish Starling Murmuration Survey, it's running this winter. Uh, we're very excited about it. We're asking people to report the locations of the murmurations that they see over the course of the winter and to do so repeatedly. If you see the same murmuration every day, let us know every day because we want to know where they're moving to and from. It's interesting to try try track them. So we, we know that uh, traditionally there's been, uh, the city of Belfast is a very good spot for them there. Um, just looking at what's been reported to us just over the last few days, there seems to be a fairly good murmuration actually in County Down at the moment, a place called Castle Rock. Mm-hmm. We see some reports coming in from there. Uh, Knobber in County Meath seems to be the source of a, a pretty big murmuration at the moment, estimated at least 10,000 birds. Wow. So well worth checking that out. Um, we know around Athlone, that kind of area, there's been good reports from there. Uh, a bit scarcer in the south of the country. Some reports from around Wexford Town of smaller murmurations. I saw one myself over the, the, the course of, of uh, the Christmas period there, uh, around Red Cow area in Dublin, um, just near Ballymount, that kind of area, the Robin Hood um, business park area. Um, I'd say maybe a thousand or so starlings flying around and a few people have reported those in as well. And then traditionally one of the best spots in all of Ireland, uh, it's in West Mead. It's actually um, at uh, Loch Enel, a place called Lilliput, not too far from uh, Mullingar. And that's, um, that's traditionally a very good spot to see the starlings doing this wonderful display in the winter. So you're asking people to send in their reports of starling murmurations. How do they do it? So uh, we'll put the details up on the on the uh, Mooney Goes Wild website. So you'll find them there. You can find it at birdwatcherland.ie as well. And basically what we're asking people to do is to go in and actually click on the map, the location where you've seen the murmuration. Uh, you give the date that you saw it and you estimate the number of birds that you saw. Now, that's not the easiest task. I do I do accept that. It can be very hard. We don't expect people to count them one by one. But give us a general sense for the size of the flock. Was it a small one, a, a medium one or a very large one? Um, so you know, give your best estimate there uh, and uh, and the time at which you saw it um, so it's just filling out a few fields there in this in this online form it's all very straightforward you click on the map to show us where it was and then when we get hundreds of people across Ireland doing that the data gets incredible yeah. and also if you go there you can actually see where the most recent murmurations have if been if you seen. want to go and have a look yourself you go and have a look for yourself it's so worth doing when will they stop doing this? It's, it's something that we see sort of building during the month of January into early February and then it starts to peter out because a lot of those birds what they're doing they're migrants that have come to Ireland we have a core breeding population that stay with us year round but probably the majority of the birds and the murmurations have come from places like the Baltic Sea region and they start heading back in the spring. So then it peters out after that. Okay, well, you mentioned Belfast and the place to see the starling murmuration is at the Albert Bridge in Belfast in the city centre there. We've recorded programmes from that bridge, uh, under the bridge and on the bridge over the last two decades or so. But they had disappeared for a while, but now it appears that the starlings are back and doing their thing. We can talk now to RTE's northern correspondent, Conor McCauley, who was down at the Albert Bridge over the weekend. So, Connor, can you give me an update, please? I can, Derek. We went down on Friday evening past there just to have a look at it. Uh, part of the reason I went on Friday was because it was the first decent day we'd had. So the light was really nice and I thought it might be nice if the birds were actually there. I, I, to be honest, I wasn't sure whether they were going to turn up or not. I'd seen a little bit of uh, stuff on social media suggesting that they were returning in number after a couple of years where they appeared to have abandoned the roost. Mm-hmm. But we, we went on a, on a wing and a prayer, if you like, and uh, down we went to the Albert Bridge uh, around about four o'clock or quarter past four just as light was dropping and you know the story you get there first there's not much sign of any activity and then very slowly the numbers start to build so we saw a little group of them maybe half a dozen ten come in and then very quickly after that more small groups started to join until we had a fairly sizable uh, murmuration going over Albert Bridge I spoke to a gentleman who knows much more about this than I do Conor McKinney of a group called Wild Belfast who's been behind the campaign to bring the birds back and he suggested there were around about 5,000 starlings there at its height. Why did they leave in the first place? I actually remember them at Queen's Bridge in Belfast, which yeah. is a bridge further down the lag, and, and they were there for years. I mean, I remember seeing them when I was driving around the city way back in the in the 90s, uh, and there was a very large murmuration of them there. Apparently what happened was around the turn of the millennium, there were a lot of fireworks displays down around the, the Queen's Bridge, which would be close to the, the centre of Belfast, and the birds were effectively scared off. So they, they appeared to have then moved upriver to the next bridge up, which is the the Albert Bridge Mm -hmm. and very successfully they were roosting quite happily there uh, until a couple of years ago apparently when there were some uh, developments in the area there was some additional LED lighting uh, put in on the bridge there were a couple of public 
plaza spaces uh, built alongside the river and there was some lighting added there and Connor's not absolutely sure but he's he's pretty sure that that additional lighting just created a, a lot of additional light pollution and effectively discombobulated the Starlings a little bit and they, they left in large numbers. He was saying to me that uh, where before there would have been thousands of Starlings at the murmuration at Albert Bridge in 2021 and 2022 they were down to dozens of Starlings. So what did he do that has changed the environment there that the Starlings have come back? What did Connor suggest? Well, the first thing they had to do was baseline what the problem was. So they weren't absolutely sure what the problem was, but they reckoned that the light pollution that we talked about there was a big part of it. So then the problem then was that there was no single entity that they could address or talk to 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 try and address the problem around the lighting because there were various different agencies. There were a couple of government departments. Uh, There was the road service had responsible for new lights on the bridge. Department for the Communities had developed the uh, public plaza spaces that we're talking about. Department of Infrastructure were also involved. So basically you had to get a lot of stakeholders together and say, right guys, uh, we think we know what the problem is, can we begin to try and address it? So what they did was effectively a couple of very simple measures. This is an old Victorian bridge, a 120-year-old bridge, so there are old Victorian-style lanterns on it, but they had put LED lights into those lanterns. So what they did was they put blackout screens on the backs of the lanterns, the bits that face out onto the river. Then they got some of the lighting in the new public plaza spaces actually turned off and then there was also some lighting down at the spans of the bridge that you will know well as you say you reported from underneath the bridge mm-hmm. there was some lighting to illuminate them for um, you know boating traffic that would be going up and down there and what they did was they got some of those either turned off turned down or in some cases they got red filters put on them. So he reckons that the combination of all those factors has led to the situation that we were at last Friday where the birds seem to be coming back and in growing numbers. Well, that's fantastic news. Connor. thank you very much indeed. Thanks. All the best, Eric. I'm very happy to hear that because I often bring people to Belfast just to see that starling murmuration over the Albert Bridge. And you can always see it just after four o'clock, as Connor has said. Now, Niall, details again of where people can go to to find information about the Starling Murmuration Survey that you're running at Birdwatch Ireland. You can find details at birdwatchireland.ie. We'll also have the link direct to the survey up at rte.ie forward slash Mooney. That same address to find all details of everything we cover on the programme every Monday. Now, Wolfmen and Waterhounds, The Myths, Monsters and Magic of Ireland by Moncon McGann. Illustrations by Steve Dugan, published by Gill Books, was released just before Christmas. And our very own Ainini Lana couldn't wait to get her teeth into it and to Moncon. Eina Connestantu, Tashagahuntach of a kind to reach. So, Thomson saw how you Eina, I'm, I'm here back in the polytunnel. Do you remember the polytunnel uh, up, up above my house? And it's kind of in a bit of a dismal uh, appearance now in winter. But how are you getting on? Oh, Thomas, as you might imagine. The polytunnel, I do remember it indeed, because it was a nice warm place out of the wind, which is presumably why you're in there in the first instance. So you're still up in the middle. <laughs> you're still up in the middle of County Westmeath, in the middle of Ireland, on your ten acres. How's the woodland going? The woodland's going great. So the woodland is now what twenty three years old, and uh, on a day like today, I particularly appreciate it because, like, I've I've chopped the wood, I've uh, split the wood, and it's now warming me beautifully. And and it now the one thing you told me to do was to put in bird boxes. So I have about fifteen bird boxes. And again, I was I was dubious would they work, but every single one of them have a little bird in it every year. And again, like you told me, I clean them out so that each year there's a new a new fledgling family in there. Did you doubt me for a moment? But why didn't I tell you it would work? Because our trees, you see, your trees are so new, they wouldn't have holes in them or anything. And these are whole nesting birds. And if there aren't any holes because your woodlands are all 25 years old, you had to provide them. So my who, you'll probably get a woodpecker next. Oh, that'd be brilliant. That'd be amazing. And the great thing is now, you know, we all have men's sheds around the area and the men are often making these bird boxes. So you don't really need to go down to your local hardware shop. The men, the, the men's shed have them for sale for like four euros or so. So it's easy to buy a good dozen of them. It's a great movement altogether. Anyway, listen, I didn't come to talk to you about sheds, women's, men's or anything else. I came to talk to you about your various publications that you have been a busy boy. Um, Wolfmen and Waterhounds, which has been published by Gill Books. It's out a while. That's a great read altogether. I was wallowing in it at a great rate. Yeah, so she's Lauer Nua. August on 
on Tema Vier, the theme of this new book, I realised we read the myths when we're in school or we hear about them. But the key element of all our old legends and lore and myths seem to be that there's these portals, these otherworldly entranceways into the world beyond, scattered all over the country. So, Hastigum Maravir Lerskoil, no mapa of Dusna Ochenichon, the Tarshig Show. I want to like, make a map of these Tarshig, these threshold sites where you where at least our ancestors believed you could enter from this world into the other world, and particularly when where beings from the other world could sneak into our place. And you have a map and you have some for each of the provinces of Ireland, but you have a great collection and selection indeed. But the ones I'm particularly interested in are the ones that are guarded by wild animals of various sorts, because these wild animals in the main are, are, are fearsome creatures that are keeping them out. Now, there's different themes on the on the fearsome creatures. Now, there are there are some of them that are serpents, that are daraku, that are water dogs, and we get these in places is like in County Clare where you have uh, a serpent a hairy monster where eyes as large as turnips and it's it's in a domain that's guarded by Pulmagollum, which is the cave of the pigeons. And we have Oninagat where we have three wild cats minding the place and we have various places where there are monsters. Loch Ree and Loch Derg and Donegal, they're full of monsters as well. Now is that some sort of uh, St. Patrick banishing the serpents kind of thing which would only make it 2,000 years old or where does that business of these serpents in the lakes come from and where were they before St. Patrick put manners on them or what can you explain about this common theme of, of serpents now in particular, worms and serpents? Yeah, I really think that like the, the two elements are there. All of these stories are definitely stories from around the St. Patrick, like symbols of St. Patrick's pure, beautiful Christianity getting rid of all the evil pagan beliefs in serpents and monsters before. But we can clearly see that these stories were a lot older than Christianity too. And in fact, particularly that Ulfeisht is fascinating. So, you know, the Ulfeisht, you know, what Ulfeisht means, like basically the super worm or the super beast. It was a being who burrowed underground and then emerged in different places. And it's said, in fact, that the entire Shannon River was created by the Ulfeisht. So, again, there's either ancient stories that are priests, Christian, but even Saint, there's a story of St. Patrick banishing this Ulfeisht and him burrowing into the ground and him creating the Shannon, which would explain that the Shannon was just there, you know, from whenever St. Patrick came, 437 AD. So it's only, it's been there the last 1,600 years. So, but in theory, you know, the, the Shannon was actually hollowed out by, by the Ulfeisht. Now, what's interesting is about that is in March of this year, I spent time with Aboriginal elders in, in Western Australia and they told me the exact same story. They said, they have the the wagal, and the wagal is this serpent creature who carves out the rivers of their area. So, like that's a culture that goes back fifty five or sixty thousand years. No direct connection to Ireland, but we have the same stories saying how we um, how we carved the land, and not only carved the Shannon, but like Loch Ree was said when when the Ulfage reached Loch Ree, there were other. Pasht, and there were other these monsters, beasts, serpents in the water. So they fought with them, and and the, you know in their huge tumult of the fight, like in a bar fight where everything is destroyed, the lake was actually hollowed out by them battering each other against the side. And that actually, there's factual evidence for that. Like in the 1960s, there were two priests on a lake in Loch Ree, and they claimed. They swore on the Holy Bible that they saw one of these serpents and they wrote an an entire full report for the inland fisheries of what they saw. So, like, we can sneer and laugh and say these are just, uh, you know, Baroque and extreme elements from our um, mythology. But actually, these were things we believed in until very recently and we believed in them for thousands of years. Yeah, they must have been at the altar wine. Anyway, we'll move on to people turning into animals and vice versa. Now, you haven't kind words for the people of Ossery because Ossery in County Kilkenny was where the wolf men lived. And these were places where wolves and people interchanged. Now, mind you, the last wolf was killed in Carlow in 1786. But you maintain that the surnames Whelan and Phelan go back to wolf hunters, wolf breeders, wolf tamers, or indeed were possibly descended from werewolves themselves. Would you care to expand upon this? 
I mean, the first time I heard this, I loved because the only thing I really knew about Ossery in Kenny was like the Bishop of Ossery and the diocese, the Ossesis of, of Ossery. It's like it was connected to a sacred element. And then when I thought of what Oss means, like Oss means it's the old word for a deer. So basically, Ossery is the people of the deer, which I love as a, as a, as a, so these were people obviously who worshipped the deer. The people of Kilkenny are a people who were very close or who had kinship or whose totem animal was the deer. So that was that element of, 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 of Kilkenny. But then when I realised there was this whole, yeah, as you said, this, um, this, this wolf element. And again, there's two stories of the wolves in Ossery. Either they were transformed into wolves by St. Patrick. Either they were pagans who were particularly loud and obstreperous and hadn't bowed down properly and showed the respect to this new Christian church. And so he converted them into wolves either for seven years or every seventh year. There's different stories. But then there's a far older story going back that no, they're actually, these wolf men, these, they're human beings during the day and at night their teeth get long and their hair, they sprout hair on their bodies and they go out hunting. But they're descendants of one particular ruler called Lyne who came from a tribe of werewolves. And again, with, you know, myth connecting to history, the actual, the kings of Ossery, the rulers of Kilkenny and Leash until the 12th century, claimed to be related directly to Lainach Filet, to this half-human, half-beastly creature. And I think there probably was some truth in it. I think there there might have been a cult of, of humans who decided they wanted to seem otherworldly and they might have sharpened their teeth into fangs and they might have grown their hair like in a wolf-like way just to be more ferocious to their enemies. Like we know, you know, there were people who would paint themselves and look more ferocious I and mean, there still are today. So I think there was a degree of truth and so it, it suited them to keep the old myth alive. But there's even words in Irish. There's a lovely expression, quarter ban, which is ban there like the peaks. So the quarter, the sign of the peaks or the horns. It's when you put two horn shapes above, you put your hands above on your head as, as horns and they make this defensive symbol that will ward off evil attacks from wolf-like creatures. Hmm. Anyway, listen, I wanted to ask you, I wanted to, I wanted to argue with you about the story of E. Thine who um, went off and turned into a swan and flew up the chimney in Tara. Now you have the poor woman turning into a blue bottle. Now that was never the way we were told about it. Etain was actually turned into a butterfly. And it was the butterfly that the, the chieftain's wife swallowed and became pregnant with her. And it was me, the, the, the king of Tara, who married her. And he was actually having a, a chess game with this warrior. And he bet his wife on the game and he lost he lost and the bet was that the warrior could have a kiss of her and of course when your man got up and got his arms around her the two of them turned into swans flew up the chimney and they vanished so you have a variation on that so obviously these stories are being handed down through different voices because the one you heard and the one I heard have a huge amount of similarity but they're not the same story so these things do genuinely go back all of these these thousands of years and are carried down verbally with obviously variations as to whether it's the blue bottle or a butterfly but the same genital concept I agree, and in fact, when I was growing up, I'd heard the the, the butterfly story too, because I I was grow I, my my family are from Kilishi from Longford, and so it was just down the road from from Ardacha or the the Arda the the sort of the the high hill. And it was a place we used to still go and collect bilberries, I suppose, on, on, on Bilberry Sunday. And it was interesting to see that's been a place where people went and got bilberries for like thousands of years back. In fact, the bilberries were meant to be so, the frahans were meant to be so um, sacred that they were preserved for the local king himself. So I'd always heard, as you said, the, the butterfly. And I was going to put that version in. And then I went back to the old texts and I thought, God, the early texts actually have this blue bottle. And I thought, what a great image. So you have Etoin, you have Midder who falls in love, as you said with the beautiful fire golden hair Etoyne with her vibrant eyes and her cheeks as bright as foxgloves um, and so she's absolutely beautiful compared to I mean Mither a married man his his elder wife Foimna can't compete with this and um, so it's you know the lustful man it's no, it's no surprise he goes off with this woman but then the fact that Foimna his wife 
gets her ultimate revenge by changing him. If if Fuimna could change her into a butterfly, that's one thing. And that was definitely suitable for us in school when we heard the story. But I love the fact that she had the spite and the vision and the anger to change him into a massive purple blue bottle the size of a man's head. Like there wasn't even wasn't even elegant a little blue bottle that you might well there's nothing much elegant about a blue bottle to be fair. But one that was the size of a, of a man's skull or a man's head. And it then do you remember what Fuimnach did then? She set up this wind and it blew in the blue, the poor blue bottle, poor Etoin or Edoin, Edine. There's so many ways of pronouncing her name. I'm up to Northern Ireland, where she lands in, where she lands in, yeah, the the, the belly or the mouth of a of a queen up there. Yeah, the book is called Wolfmen and Waterhounds, The Myths, Monsters and Magic of Ireland, illustrated by Steve Dugan with lovely pictures and published by Gil Books. But it's not the only book you've produced. You've produced a book called Fuckle Naman. Now, this is a follow on from 32 Words for a Field, where in among all the other <laughs> guff you have in it, you mentioned the fact that there are about 32 words for a man's penis and nothing for the female part. And it was never in the dictionaries. The dictionaries were written by men. There will be none of this filth in the dictionaries for about women's parts, none of that. And then, lo and behold, I'm looking now at Fuckle Naman, and you've managed to write a whole book about women's words that you didn't know anything about in the last one. How did you suddenly learn all these words for women's bits? Who told you? Who broke the omerta? (laughs) <laughs> I know that Noel Nihonel, the great poet, she said that she believed that there was no words for Irish um, sexuality until she was married. And then she was invited into the back kitchen and she suddenly realised there was a whole hidden um, world of words that the women were, you know, privy to. But they didn't share unless unless you were married and unless you were sexually active and part of that world. So, again... I am, I'm, well, I'm not married and I'm not a woman. And so my little book, Fuckle the Man, is just, it's like a catalyst for other women to go and collect the huge amount of words. There is undoubtedly unlimited words out there, but I collected about 85 different words. Some words that I found in old dictionaries, some words, to my shame, that I went to the old fishermen. I had a project last, two years ago, called Sea Tamagotchi, where I was collecting sea words from fishermen in Donegal and Mayo and Galway. So, so I went back to them and I said, look, do you have any words for women's bodies? And they gave me some beautiful ones. One word was for the clitoris, ribba unchivroin. And ribba means a little tuft of hair or a tiny little blade of grass or like a stronger than a blade of grass, a blade of straw. Ribba is a little tuft or a straw. And um, unchivroin means of the delusionment, of the derangement. So these little phrases that describe the woman's body but what I found most about them, about these words, so like blayan mana, blayan mana is a word for the vagina, obviously mana just of women and blayan. Blayan can mean a cove or a cave, but it can also mean um, two flat inlets of land with water in between them. And gawal is the same. Gawal means a, a fork of land or a kind of an estuary. And again, that's another word, gawal mana, for a vagina. It seems our ancestors used these words for the women's sexual organs based on the landscape around them, See, almost seeing the land as a woman's body. And it's, it's illustrated every page as an illustration as well. But come here to me, you really will have to rehabilitate Peg Sayers because the book we learnt in school and Peg and nearly put everybody in the world off learning Irish was a very sanitised version because Dev didn't want filth in the schools. I mean, Peg was an earthy woman. She knew all these words. She told them to Robin Flower, but they never got into the sanitised book that we had to put up with in school. So that's your next job, Mankin. Go back down and rehabilitate Peg Sayers as a woman who knew all of this Stuff and make the Irish language something everybody wants to study. James Joyce would have nothing on it. It'll be translated into Japanese and every other language. Shin Shin Job knew it. Ditch, Igor, and Blee in a Ta egg chat. Listen, Fuckle Naman, Women's Words, is available in all good bookshops as well. It has huge amounts of illustrations in it, and the words are by Mankin McGann, as told to him by various people who knew them, not himself personally, you understand. Jask Verkeinschlat, Mankin, Amor. We'll chat again, I hope. And we'll put the details on our website, rte.ie forward slash money. Well, that's it, Niall. That's the end of our first 
programme in studio for 2024. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I, I resolved to do more Mooney Goes Wild in 2024. That's my New Year's resolution. I think so. that should be everybody's New Year's resolution. What do you think? Absolutely. Get as many, as many listeners as possible. Spread the word. All the details, rte.ie forward slash Mooney if you want to take part in the Starling Murmuration Survey and the great big garden bird watch on the 5th of Feb. Talk to you next week. Bye! Bye!